Welcome, everybody, to episode 134 of the Metabolist 2 podcast, which, as usual, features David and Ben. And I hear you have the kettle on in the background. I do. Apologies to non-kettle boiling fans, <laughs> um, but I'm making myself a cup of tea. It will be done very, very soon, I mm-hmm. promise. Well, is, do you have a whistling kettle? or No, God, no. Whistling kettles are a... I don't know. Is that an American thing? Uh, kind of. Really? Like, yeah, you just, like, it boils, and then you, like, it's boiled now. And then you make a cup of tea. Like, huh. a whistling? Well, why do you need it to whistle? I, I, I've never had a kettle that didn't whistle. Well, it's, it's just listen. Listen, you can hear it. <laughs> you can hear when it stopped boiling. Well, I think American houses are so vast... They are. Well, that, actually, that you need the you need the whistle. <laughs> okay, well, there's two things. I think one of which I think Americans still some of them will make uh, 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 will boil water by putting it on the stove. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So then you do you kind of maybe do you do need a signal because mm-hmm. if you if you forget that the kettle's boiling and you just keep heating it, then it's going to boil dry and explode and like burn down the house. Yes. So that's one reason for for whistle. The other reason for whistle I think would be is that American electricity is so much weaker than British electricity for perfectly normal, <laughs> valid reasons. Okay. That it takes ages to boil a kettle in metal, just like minutes of like tedious time, in which case you're likely to walk away, so maybe you maybe you do need a whistle. Our stronger electricity we have in Britain, for perfectly valid reasons, um, it takes maybe thirty seconds to boil a kettle. So Really? I Oh yeah. Wow. Yeah, so that, le- that explains the whole tea culture. <laughs> Oh yeah, electricity is really strong in Britain. It's like really kind of dangerous. Like you have huh. to. That's that's why our plugs are so massive. If you've ever seen a British plug, huh. um, oh, the kettle's just boiled. Actually, I'm just going to put the tea in. Hang All right. On. Your long kettle boiling nightmare is over. So, but you're saying the plugs are more heavy The plugs duty. Are, are big, yeah. I mean, oh. I remember being thinking, being, being amazed when I first came to America how puny your little plugs are with those two little silver, like goldy things that, uh-huh. like, you know, yeah. maybe like a millimeter thick that stick out. <laughs> like, how could electricity possibly go through those things? How, how many volts is wall outlets in the UK? Oh, a, a lot. More. I I know so little about electricity <laughs> as a as a as a scientific concept. I okay. couldn't say right. a lot more. Mm, okay, I think it's two forty. Okay, actually. so it's double than what is in the US. Yeah, what 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 is it in a twenty uh, one twenty? Yeah, it's two forty. Okay, yeah, twice as powerful. Twice as powerful. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So why we never had the electric chair? Why 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 we all just had hanging? I have no huh. idea. because well. um, our electricity is a lot better at killing people than your electricity is. <laughs> Well, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Go. I don't know. Okay, that's we're why we had. That's why you had a killer machine. I think. <laughs> that's it. That's it. A, mi- a, lit- a literal mind of evil. Um, we're well, getting off the subject of the specter of Lanyon Moore, aren't we? But we have uh, Mrs. Moynihan, the Revenge of the Tea Lady. Uh, that that could be our segue back into. Uh, true. True. Two thousand June of two thousand Big Finish release number nine. The Spectre yeah. of Lanyon Moore. Lanyon Moore, yes. Written and directed by the uh, infamous now, I guess, Nicholas Pegg. <laughs> now infamous <laughs> Nicholas Pegg. Um, Has he worked have... in Doctor Who since then? Uh, I, uh, I, since I, his I, big... Uh, so for uh, non-regular listeners... Uh, uh, you want to explain what happened of DW Doctor Who magazine? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not going to remember the exact issue of DWM. I'm afraid, but he used to compile the crossword for DWM, and he used to do all the kind of regular quizzes for DWM, and he was also the watcher. So he wrote a a kind of you know the funny back page of kind of. But he's very erudite, and actually some of his erudition and some of the kind of tricksiness. Of his interests actually come out in Spectre of Lanyon Moor, where you get characters talking about each other as they walk away in the mm-hmm. same way. You know, that's it's, that's very kind of peggish, basically. But uh, like all people of a certain disposition, he was a, he was an enemy of political correctness in all its forms, <laughs> um, and didn't enjoy. Well, the, the Doctor Who magazine in the kind of early part, latter part of twenty eighteen. Um, was 2017 I think 2017 I'm begging its pardon mm-hmm. was uh, deemed by the BBC to be too 
uh, too much of a uh, of a kind of a rogue element. It wasn't praising the show enough. I wasn't praising class enough, which the BBC wanted to be a you know an important show. And it also it was being too obviously anti-Trump and anti-Brexit. Mm-hmm. Not that the BBC is pro-Trump or pro-Brexit, although one might argue that it might be. But the BBC is supposed to be impartial. And the magazine was not seen, seen to be impartial enough. So um, we are told, or, or so the story goes, um, the kind of editorial team of uh, Doctor Who magazine was kind of dragged away to a kind of Chinese-style education, re-education camp. Well, well, they were sent away for like a day's worth of training on how to be impartial. Right. And uh, this so incensed Nicholas Pegg that the next column that he wrote for Doctor Who magazine, um, this Watcher column that he did, but he was doing this really, actually really kind of interesting column, which was called Doctor Who in, 100 and, in 101 Objects. Yep. Um, and I was, I was a big fan. I was like, oh, great. This is mm-hmm. going to be 101 of these. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think this was something like the 75th one that 87th. he did. 87th. Eight, the 87th. Mm-hmm. He wrote, uh, he did an acrostic for it. Or is that, uh, I think <laughs> yes. that's a technical yep. word. Yep. Whereby the first letter of every, of every sentence or every paragraph. Paragraph, paragraph I think it was. Of every paragraph in this column spelt out a um uh spelt out bbc worldwide r and a, a very very rude word that americans hate british mm-hmm. people like it more mm-hmm. um but i'm not gonna i'm not gonna say it on air not that even this is on air but ext- <laughs> probably the rudest word you can think of uh-huh. um and that and that's surpri- <laughs> unsurprisingly came to the attention of the editor of Doctor Who magazine. Panini, uh, which was, Panini I think it was. Well, Panini, yep. uh, but also I think to Tom Spilsbury, who was the editor then, and he, he was mm. sacked. Was it, it wasn't Spilsbury, because the editor was, uh, well, yeah, it was Spilsbury, but it Spilsbury, was Spilsbury didn't and, then, and then Spilsbury left as well, and Marcus right. Hearn took over. Yeah. So there was a complete changing of the guard, I think precipitated by this kind of re-education day that they all had to go on, saying that, you know, <laughs> you are, you're not an independent magazine. Cardiff Pravda. Panini at all you mm-hmm. are an official mouthpiece of um of cardiff mm-hmm. and if you don't toe the line then you're out right. and uh, a lot of them did leave yeah but this was at a much happier time for doctor who's or for nick Pegg's involvement with doctor who this is back in 2000 uh, so it was yes. probably being written in 1999 i would imagine it was because he's also a dalek operator as he well. was I he mean, was yeah he was a dalek operator yeah yeah so this is uh uh, the ninth release in the main main range, and it features Colin Baker as the Doctor with uh, Evelyn, Doctor Evelyn Smythe as the companion. The and, late, very much late lamented. Um, what's her name? Yeah, uh, Maggie Stables. Yeah, Maggie Stables. Yeah. yeah. So in your in your big book of uh, oh my big, big finished lore, did you? Oh, is there goodness. anything? Anything interesting that you? I completely forgot about my b- big book. Hey, oh. um, I'm going to finish make my tea, and I'll bring in the big book. All right. Well. You know, I was listening to this before I went to sleep last night, so mm-hmm. I completely forgot that I had, I had, I, I, Benjamin I had the Cook's big book. big book. Yeah, Benjamin Cook's book. Um, well, it grew out of a conversation. I'm told here, um, he's big friends. He was big friends with uh, Gary Russell, with mm-hmm. Nicholas Pegg, producer, so, um, producer, uh, the producer. Yeah, and um, um, what else does it say? Blah 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 blah. Uh, yeah, I haven't actually read this, so um, I don't know. The thing that I found uh, fascinating is that this was originally uh, offered to Tom Baker, and it was going to be a Liz Sladen and Tom Baker story. Oh, yes. And yes, it does say big, that here. Big yes, Tom it does. turned them down. And I think this, uh, you know, cards on the table here, 
Colin Baker is very likable as the doctor in this. And I think the secret to writing Colin Baker's doctor is to write for him as if you were writing for Tom Baker. Because if this was a Tom Baker script, Colin Baker does a marvelous job as the doctor in the story. But with that bit of knowledge, you can totally hear Tom Baker in it. And you can, in Evelyn Smythe, is Sarah Jane Smith. It's, It's very much the plucky young journalist this older woman who's a you know a academic uh, this they're cut from the same cloth to use that cliche which is what makes Evelyn Smythe such a great character because she doesn't behave like you expect right a woman in her an academic woman in her 60s to behave mm-hmm. which is what makes her such a great character so in some ways that's kind of genius really right yeah. you know yeah. just write as if you're writing for Sarah Jane so this is a yeah. really, really enjoyable story, but it 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 is. We we were talking last week about recycling and reusing. This story, I think, leans heavily. It's it it definitely is a pastiche of yeah. of the nineteen uh, seventies Doctor Who, from the archaeological dig of the demons to the even just the beginning with the City of Death, where we have Sancrita and his uh, brother's uh, sick friend. Uh, yep. uh, uh, being having having a problem, so where Sancrita is left behind, or stones of blood, even down to a random walker, right uh, slash camper getting devoured in about ten seconds. Yeah, yeah, uh, that that was uh, probably one of the things I didn't like about it. Is that was that really necessary? And I think it was, but it was it was a little bit harsh. I was also thinking Terror of the Zygons as well, with like mm-hmm. you know the creepy old. Um, the creepy uh, 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 layered, yep. you know, of some kind of Celtic area being yep. also creepy. Yep. yep, yeah, I agree. These are the archaeologists. This is the archaeologist uh, Morgan is the, I'm going to suggest that Nick Pegg had picked Morgan as the Professor Morgan is the same archaeologist that uh, Amelia Rumsford, uh, Rumford in uh, Stones of Blood was singling out as the... Uh, Professor of Megalithic Archaeology in Bangor, uh, Idwell right. Morgan. I, t- I suggest that Professor Morgan in Spectre of Lang and Moore is Idwell Morgan that was name-checked uh, in David Fisher's uh, Stones of Blood. Yep, yep, absolutely. And it does say here, the trivia, there are several obscure references to other Doctor Who stories. For example, Evelyn mentions one to Archibald's ancestors being an amateur archaeologist called Sir Percival Flint which is a reference to a line in The Demons, mm-hmm. um, which talks about Sir Percival Flint's miners fled back to Cornwall, leaving him for dead. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a, obviously you just picked out another one. Um, oh, and here it is. Uh, uh, and Lemington Smith, who is away at an archaeological symposium, is described by Professor Rumford in The Stones of Blood as an expert on Cornish fugus. Well, she called him a fool. I don't know if she would consider him an expert. And, and uh, Professor Morgan thought Lemington Smith was a fool too. So uh, if, if we are ever to meet Lemington Smith, he is not highly respected by his academic peers. <laughs> oh, it's another fun bit of trivia. Um, if you look at the front cover of your CD, it's a picture of Dartmoor. Mm-hmm. And the particular picture of Dartmoor on the front cover is a picture of Hound Tour, where, of course, um, they filmed Suntaran Experiment. Yep. So it all... It all fits together. So... It all fits together, yeah. I think since this is pretty obviously a pastiche, the question is, how well does uh, Nick Pegg execute on it? Is it a successful pastiche of this uh, 1970s genre, especially considering that this would have been for Tom Baker, potentially? Um, I thought they did very well. It was very entertaining. Yeah. You know, I mean, some great performances. Nicholas Courtney never never disappoints, really, apart from when he's in that one uh, where they're all in America for some reason. Mininette in my own personal hell. Yeah, we haven't uh, reviewed that, <laughs> but even Nick Courtney doesn't disappoint in it. It isn't Nick Courtney that lets it down is. that story. It's the story in general. That's yes. true. Um, Colin Baker is amazing. Mm-hmm. Maggie Stables is also fantastic. Um, the guest cast, uh, James Bolam uh, and his wife, uh, Susan Jameson, mm-hmm. uh, uniformly excellent. They are the guest cast, effectively. They are the guest cast. Everyone I mean, else for, is in the troupe. <laughs> exactly. For trivia fans, of course, James Bolan first came to prominence as an actor in the UK by being in The Likely Lads and then whatever happened to The Likely Lads with Rodney Buse, huh. who, of course, plays the doomed whoever he plays in Resurrection of the Daleks. Um, but yeah, James Bolan is a big deal. And he really... Does a good job as the evil uh, lord, whoever he is. <laughs> Alistair Crowley falling. Exactly, uh, yes. Archibald, Sir Archibald Flint. 
That's it. A minor baronet. <laughs> yeah, the minor baronet, Sir Archibald Flint. Um, he he does an excellent job. He's very very creepy, and um, yeah. So Toby Longsworth um, again does some great accents. Does a great Welsh accent, mm-hmm. and then does a great imp accent um, <laughs> when he when he plays the imp. Yes. of some kind. Yes. Uh, ten ten grade. Ten grade. 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 Yes. That's yes. it. Yeah. 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 Well, we have three regulars here. We have Nick Pegg, we have uh, Toby Longworth, and uh, Barnaby Edwards, who plays Philip Ludgate, the herald to Evelyn Smith's mod at the beginning, and then ultimate betrayer of Evelyn Smith. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He does great. Yeah, okay. Sorry, I'm, 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 I was getting distracted by reading <laughs> by, by, by reading my big book, Big Finish. Oh, dear. Okay. Um, no, the, the, the acting is, is excellent all the way through. And um, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, nothing to fault really with okay. the acting on the acting front. Uh, the sound design is phenomenal. This is probably the best big finish, early big finish sound design that I think the music and the background noises are very subtle and work really well in concert together. I was just about to say how good it was, yeah. Just from when the TARDIS lands. You hear buzzing of insects, you hear pheasants, you hear the squilching of mud. And yep. then like when they're in uh, Goon Hilly, you hear, you hear keyboards, you hear electronic instruments in a bit. When Ludgate is at the keyboard, you hear the keyboard. Yes. It has this very subtle background ambiance that ties in the drama in that you're thinking this is natural, not an artificial layered a soundscape that's being produced in a studio it feels to my ears i hear it as if this is a on-site recording which of course it isn't it's uh it's all in a studio but, but yeah it, it has that ambience of their on yep. location and it yep. works works well outside sounds like outside and yes. inside sounds like inside it's mm-hmm. it's really very very well done and it really does transport you to a muddy uh muddy-ish bits of mm-hmm. a moor in Cornwall, which I guess is where this is set. Yeah. And the Cornish setting, uh, obviously there's a little bit of uh, Nick Pegg doing the info dump of all the information or all the research he did at, at the beginning, but it does, it's not too bad. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, and he, he could have done more. I'm going to read from the big book, the big finish here. Most of the place names and alien terms in the script were borrowed or adapted from Cornish folklore. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, the little stone with a hole in it is named after the Menantol, one of West Cornwall's most famous megaliths, which actually is a is a stone with a hole in it. Um, a few hundred yards from the Menantol is another monument called the Menscrifer, after which Peg named the character of Scryfan. And Sancreda was partially based on the ancient Cornish demon called Trigeagle. Huh. I would have guessed it was the named after Sancreed the Cornish village, so it's obviously fits within within the area. And here we are. In the end, I named him after Sancred, an obscure Cornish saint. There you go. I, ca- I came across <laughs> the name one day in a book on Cornish mythology and discovered to my surprise that Sancred, Saint Sancred, accidentally killed his father and served his repentance by living as a swineherd for the rest of his life. <laughs> so there you go. Accidentally killed. Mm-hmm. someone accidentally which spoiler alert that's what that's what actually happens yeah and it, just like that very very beginning scene when uh san Creta was being attacked by the wild dogs right you weren't missing the visuals and that the, the soundscaping that they did combined with uh alistair Locke's music worked very effectively and it conveyed the mental images and you didn't feel like you were missing out on what was actually yeah. happening in that scene. And then, you know, at the climax when someone else gets attacked by dogs, it's like mm. equally like, Oh God, this is horrible. I yeah. mean, you really kind of sells that as kind of a really nasty way to die mm-hmm. being eaten by a dog. Now this is very, very workmanlike, but that clue is set up at the very beginning when the doctor and Evelyn are walking uh, on one of the cow paths or paths to the uh, Fugle. Um, Moynihan's dogs growling at them and she roping them or getting them under control again. So it's it's absolutely it it ties all the way all the way together very nicely. Uh, there's not a lot of originality in this. There's nothing out of left field. We we aren't getting a Moffat like twist on any of this. No. It's all very straightforward 
in some ways it is very predictable, but it's an enjoyable predictableness, I guess. Yeah, I mean, again, you know, one other thing that comes to mind when you think about people getting eaten by dogs in Cornwall is the Hound of the Baskervilles, um, mm-hmm. which is, of course, <laughs> about people getting eaten by dogs in Cornwall. Um, and uh, so on a more so it's you know it's still exactly it's still exactly the same um and i think you know that predictability does make it like a pleasurable because you know you kind of know what's going to happen but also b it's fun to like listen to it and like pick out the references Mm -hmm. which i think works well and um yeah you're very in tune with the beats of this because if you're familiar with doctor who if you're familiar with conan doyle's hound of the baskerville the beats of the story are predictable but yet then enjoyable it's like listening to uh, it's like listening to another song by a group or a band that you know and you know you're going to like because it's very similar to something else that you like and it's comfortable it's a it fits well within the genre of Doctor Who, a classic Doctor Who story. Yeah, you know, and again, what's fun about these audio adventures is it's also kind of slightly turned up to 11. So, you know, not only is the lair, the, you know, the aristocrat evil, mm-hmm. but he's like super evil. Um, <laughs> you yeah. know, I mean, not only does he want to kill you, he wants to boil your eyeballs in your skull. Right. And not only is the, I don't know, sad, posh woman who turns out to be a stooge of some kind... Uh, but she goes to Athens and right. becomes evil and a stooge of some kind, and she kills someone. And right. and you know, it's 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 there's a slight there's a there's a heightening of it all, which kind of makes it. Oh yeah, this is like Doctor Who, but this is kind of oh this is this is grown up kind of adult Doctor Who, where like horrible more horrible things happen, which is nice and kind of feeds into one's you know desire for one's favorite show to be ooh a bit more a bit more edgy. It's very much like a Missing Adventures of the 90s, I think. Very much it, like it, Missing it Adventures, yes. Flows from yes. that uh, that feeling. Um I'm not sure how experienced of a writer Nick Pegg was at that time because there are some I think ham-fisted type uh, plotting or just explaining like Is we're... a bun vendor in there somewhere? Hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a tea lady, perhaps. A tea lady, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, specifically to uh, Mrs. Moynihan, that Lud- mm. Ludgate saying, you know, that her husband ran off with her secretary and her daughter doesn't speak to her anymore. And right. that she, beneath that surface, she's a bitter, bitter woman. And I, I think that would have been, you know, the classic is uh, show us, not tell us. If there was some way in the script that Peg could have had that bitterness come across or just subtle... Uh, beneath beneath the surface uh, asides or something like that would have been perhaps a better way. Uh, it was almost a little too predictable in some ways for me that San Creta went and killed Archibald Flint because Flint was trying to control the demon or control the right. imp. Right. The, the strengths of it, though, I think this was a more successful outing for the Brigadier, a final story for the Brigadier, than... Uh, battlefield was this is a much more likable uh, polite genial officer than ever there was uh, who uh, the brigadier comes across as very sexist very behind the times set in his ways which we saw in battlefield it was it's it's almost a parody like the first doctor is right, in right, twice right, right. upon a time the brigadier in many ways is a parody of his earlier self in battlefield but in specter of lanyon moore i felt we had a very similar final scene but throughout that, the Brigadier is much more respectful yeah. to Dr. Smythe you know, and just people around him, much more of the diplomat, which you would see smoothing over things. Yeah. And that came across in this script, which did not come across in Battlefield. Well, I mean, I think with Battlefield, I, you know, you're only a few years after the Brigadier was last kind of on the show. So I think, you know, in some ways, well, I think A, all of that Cartmel crew were kind of, you know, they were kind of late 80s young kind of right on men um you know who wanted to kind of like yeah the establishment is evil like you know the the brigadier is some kind of sexist dinosaur we've got to write him as that mm-hmm. um even though you know he was written with affection he was also written as like yeah he's like he's the man and the doctor is like you know anti-establishment etc etc right i think peg a it's like 20 or so years later mm-hmm. 15 or so years later you know after mordren undead or you know when when you when last you want to choose that the brigadier was sort of you know a, a major character um and b i think also pegs a very different kind of person 
um, as evinced by his hatred of anything politically correct. Um, <laughs> and therefore, you know, yes, the establishment is a good thing in some ways. So actually, you know, the army is a good, you know, unit, unit is a good thing rather mm-hmm. than a bad thing. And um, that's where it seems to me the kind of difference, the difference in that writing in that writing comes. I, though, I was actually upset. I'm not upset. Um, I, I was kind of looking for, well, I wasn't looking forward to it because I knew I'd, I'd heard it before. But I think the Brigadier should have had a more flirty relationship with Evelyn Smythe. Hmm. That could have worked. Yeah, I think, I, think, I think there should have been some kind of spark there, mm-hmm. which I think was probably beyond Peg in terms of writing. Um, but I think that would have made it. I would have, you know, it was like, oh, he's he's away from home, like Doris is. Right. Because yeah, I think I think the the brigadier has always been presented as slightly slightly a ladies' man. A little bit of a um, roving eye, yeah. A little bit of a roving eye, and I think his eye could have very easily roved over Evelyn Smythe. Instead, I think they gave that to Sir Archibald Flint instead, who was commenting on. That's it, and he was evil, so that didn't it right. didn't count in the end. Yeah. So. Right. Mm. I I could see that. I can also see why they didn't go there. Yeah. Because of. Uh, too much is too much and the whole bit of the brigadier recognizing the doctor right away i thought was very nicely done and oh i thought that was brilliantly done you know all that kind of tedious sort of like oh who are you i mm-hmm. don't know blah, blah, blah. it's like it was totally circumnavigated mm-hmm. and you know written as like yes of course the, the brigadier knows by now if like a weird bloke <laughs> in strange clothes suddenly turns up and takes charge of stuff, it's the doctor. Right. And again, it really plays to the brigadier being someone who's intelligent and kind of learns from his mistakes um, and, you know, grows in his in his knowledge of things. Yeah, I, 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 that, that was actually pretty much one of my favorite bits of writing in the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I think that also good bit of writing to reinvent uh, Colin Baker's portrayal of the doctor with uh, Evelyn, excuse me, with Evelyn telling the doctor that he should go apologize to Professor Morgan, that he isn't an idiot. He's just overwhelmed. And that right. that whole bit. And then, and then how the doctor doesn't quite apologize, but then extends a hand of friendship to uh, Professor Morgan and uh, relying on his expertise with a little bit of flattery. And so it's not quite an apology, but it is a, a recognition of uh, a value of Professor Morgan that he's not like Mr. Chin in Claws of Access type. type yeah, and, and that kind of nicely also, you know, we're, we're kind of making the uh, making the Brigadier a more well-rounded and kind of believable character um as well as i said you know short short circuiting of the kind of tedious exposition that we might have had mm-hmm. in kind of earlier uh, but it also it, it it also humanizes the doctor as well right. and like okay this kind of horrific um you know rude alien that colin baker was was made to portray when he was on the screen mm-hmm. um this is actually a rude alien who sometimes you know will apologize and realizes that you know maybe he doesn't Maybe he sometimes, by mistake, treats people badly, but should apologize for that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All the bits. It just There was less hard edge on him in a good way. Not that he yes. wasn't edgy. He just was not so prickly. He wasn't so abrasive. He wasn't unlikable like he was in much of his run on television. Yeah, and the thing is, the Doctor, you're supposed to like the Doctor. You're yeah. not supposed to yeah. not like him. Yeah. Um, exactly. And, you know, the kind of edginess of like, oh, he's someone who's really horrible. Well, if he's someone who's really horrible, I don't want him to be a hero, to be honest. And I would much rather. Yeah. So that's that's always the kind of problem I have with the six doctors tenure on screen. Yeah. You don't want to spend time watching. You don't want to spend time with no. this uh person even though you love the show you love the format it's a bit hard it becomes tedious it becomes painful to watch they're like i don't want to spend time with you it's like hard work yeah this is this Mm -hmm. show is supposed to be entertaining me it's an entertainment show so that's what i want it to do i would have liked more bits with the doctor evelyn and the brigadier just talking and learning or evelyn learning from from the doctor that was one of the sad bits at the end where we really didn't get to see them talking over dinner or reminiscing or something. I think that's a place where Big Finish could have, could have had room to grow or breathe a right. little bit on that. And if, if even if that was in the middle of a story, because episode two and three weren't quite as pacey as the first and fourth episode. No, though I did like, as I said, I was, I'd actually forgotten how radically um, Mrs. Moynihan turns mm-hmm. um and that was exciting for me when oh yeah 
she goes to Greece to do that. Mm-hmm. I'd forgotten about that. So um, that kind of uh, helped me get through episode three. Do you think you think Athens was necessary? Do you think it would have been better or maybe not better, but more apt to have this in the British Museum somewhere? She went into London for this rather than... No, I think, that, I think that worked well for me, actually, because it's actually, you know, given the kind of class of woman who was being portrayed yeah she probably would go on a on a cruise i mean you know she wouldn't just go up to london for the day Mm -hmm. um well she would go up to london for the day but you know um to to that she's going on a you know some kind of educational trip to athens and then you know cruise around the greek islands sounds very very uh uh sounds very likely okay um uh, character wise to me you Mm -hmm. know the kind of upper class lonely upper class woman that she was portraying mm-hmm. that fit very well it's it's it, it sounded very um uh, very appropriate to me okay i was kind of wondering why they would do that because i thought it was uh you know peg just showing more of his research that oh yeah there was trade between the greeks and the celts and you know no, i guess a whole so bit yeah a little bit of defensiveness saying the celts really weren't primitive and, yeah but it may have not been for plot reasons or for staging reasons, but it was for character reasons. And that, as you say, I, I agree with you. I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think, you know, obviously showing one's erudition is probably the main part of it. But it didn't feel jarring to me. It okay. felt it, it, it kind of fit with the character. Okay, that, that really helps. I think that, that, makes, that makes sense to me that this, this fits the type of character Mrs. Moynihan was. Yeah, yeah. Though I think the one thing that did jar a little bit is how quickly she came back from Athens. It was like, oh, and now she's back from Athens. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you got to get to Athens Airport, which is a really bad airport. You got to get on an airplane. Um, you got to fly to you know Gatwick or Heathrow. You've got to pick up a car. You know, it's, anyway. So, so I mean, pacing wise, <laughs> it would she left in episode one. If the, she would have had the scenes in episode two at the museum i think they were in episode three then pacing wise that probably would have made a little more yeah it would have made a little more sense because it's cornwall's a long way from anywhere else it is it's a a day (laughs) it's a day on the train it's a day by car um uh, anyway so yeah that's uh, i think that was the only downside of the athens uh uh, the athens cutaway for me did you like the goon hilly cutaway Goon Hilly Down. Everyone loves Goon Hilly Down. That mm-hmm. was great. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, if anyone is, uh, do, do they still have those big balls there? I can't remember. Or is that, am I thinking somewhere else that has the big balls? I don't know. I, I, d- I think they have the Merlin and the Arthur dish. That's how I know of Goon Hilly. It's a satellite tracking station. Yeah. Let me just, um, I'm just going to Google Goon Hilly now. Um, well worth, I mean, all of that part of Cornwall is lovely. I mm-hmm. mean, if everyone, anyone is in, finds themselves near Cornwall. Mm-hmm. That's Penzance well area. Worth, yeah, well worth the trip. Yeah. Is it primarily touristy now? I mean, I can't imagine they're doing what that was a set of the smugglers in the Hartnell era. Uh, yeah, no, I mean they don't have tin. Well, I guess they have. I mean, again, they have kind of mining? vague, vague tin mines, but nothing. You know, uh, it's not one of the major. No, the made the, the industry in Cornwall's likes agriculture, fishing, and um, tourism mainly. Mm-hmm. Tourism. Yeah. It sounds like they have a lot of Neolithic, megalithic. Uh, yeah, type things, men here's tumbles, stone circles, fugus, and fugus, extensively. Yeah, yeah, and you get fugus across the Bristol Channel in South Wales as well on the Gower Peninsula. There's fugus, really. Um, yeah, fugus are a kind of a, a kind of a West, West Celtic thing. Mm-hmm. You'll get fugus. Interesting. Um, yeah, and I saw the the Cornwall. The Corn, it felt convincingly Cornish to me, though there was no one with a Cornish accent, so. Maybe everyone was was found that a bit hard to do. Mm-hmm. Um, Better not to do one than do one poorly. Absolutely, absolutely. Yep, yep, mm-hmm. yep. Definitely agreed. Yeah. So uh, along with the character development, I thought the very final scene with uh, the brigadier just very quietly saying, "It's nice to know we still make a good team, Doctor." Yes. And I thought that was a really, really nice uh, reflection on Nick Courtney as the brigadier's time with the doctor over all the regenerations that they still work together as a team they still have that rapport and at the end of the day it's the brigadier standing up for the his planet and the doctor setting the stage so the brigadier can shine often is the case i think yeah yeah absolutely and i I also like you know the, the the kind of relationships you know, they didn't feel the need to introduce another brigadier of some kind mm-hmm. you know the that the, they there was a I guess we couldn't say they were multi-ethnic, but they were certainly um, 
gender diverse unit troops of which corporal you, croft and uh, corporal croft exactly captain ashford yep and i think you know the 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 brigadier had a good relationship with his you know as as any good officer would have um he had a good relationship with his troops mm-hmm. and i thought that i thought that kind of command relationship was played very well a lot better than i felt it was played in battlefield for instance yeah exactly that's again i think we we, we had already touched upon that but that's one of the bits I really liked that this captured, I felt the Brigadier's character much more. And I was a bit surprised that this was it for Big Finish. A minuet in Hell and uh, Specter of Landing Moor with Nick Courtney interacting with the Doctor. Everything else was that Nick Courtney did was uh, was uh, with kind of the unit files rather than with the Doctor. I, I, I'm, yeah. I was surprised by that. Which is a shame. I mean, I think... I don't know. I mean, maybe they had more plans for him. You know, maybe I don't know. I don't know. You know, it could be. It could be because it's hard to say with how much the output of Big Finish is today and how much they bank because these actors aren't getting any younger or there's availability and how how far things out. But I think back then, this is early early days of Big Finish that uh, perhaps there was. We don't have the scripts. We're not ready, even if. Yeah. Even if we can book the actors, we don't have a script, and it's not quite the mill that it is right now. Yeah, and I think maybe you know this is a sad thing to say, but you know, I I mean, Nick Courtney died at a reasonably good age, but it wasn't a super advanced age. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you know maybe something like Nick Courtney dying might have demonstrated to Big Finish that you know that actually their kind of you know their core classic Who actors are not immortal. Um, and they do actually, you know, if they're, if they're willing and able to work and if they have the good scripts, they need to have them in the studio working pretty hard because they're not going to be around forever. Right. Yeah, that could be because combined with Nick Courtney's passing and uh, Liz Sladen's passing kind of almost concurrently. And then a little bit after that, we had Caroline John where we were and then Mary Tam and Mary just, Tam. Yeah. Lose, lose quite a bit of the 1970s actors all at once. And even, and even, you know, the, the big finish kind of stable, you know, Maggie, uh, Maggie. Uh, stable, uh, Maggie, Maggie stables going, uh-huh. um, again, uh, not at a huge advanced age, but certainly, you know, I guess she was old enough to die. Yeah. Uh, that was a huge blow. I felt cause she was really a, just a stu- I felt she was a stunning, mm-hmm. um, addition to the companion roster. Yeah. At this time, uh, Nick Courtney was doing, uh, for, I think they're baffle gab now. I can't remember what they were previously, but he was doing the Scarifier series with, oh, yeah. uh, Terry Malloy. Were, right, and he had. Have done, you ever? Have you, have you ever heard those? Yeah, too? I have. They're they're okay. very. Uh, they're they're they're. I like them. They're very different from Doctor Who, but it it's Terry Malloy and uh, Nick Courtney. <laughs> so it's it's a uh, it's very it's very enjoyable. Nick Courtney was a star in in the first five before his passing, and then uh, David Warner took. Oh, over. David Warner took over. Right, I love mm-hmm. David Warner. And Terry Malloy, of course, is the uh, continuing thread through all all ten ten series. But they're yeah. they're more Lovecraftian. They're more the Alistair Crowley would play a bigger bigger role in those type right. of, type of stories than than uh, just being the uh, inspiration for Sir Archibald Flint in Spectre right. and Million more. Right, right, right. Interesting. Oh, I should try and charm. Well. When do I have time? Right. Maybe I should maybe try and uh, try and check some of those out. Yeah, they they're they're good. They have like I think Philip Maddock was in one before his passing, and uh, right. Uh, Gareth David Lloyd I know has been in in one, and uh, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brian Blessed was in one. So. Oh my god! Brian <laughs> Gabriel Blessed. Wolf, Stephen Thorne before his passing. So right. So right. it was very Hinchcliffian, very Hammer Horror esque. Uh, inspired more than uh, doctor who inspired because of course right. the, you don't have the doctor right right you have to you have something completely different yeah interesting great um uh what else about dialogue that? conversation the, the dialogue there's some really i think uh, witty lines and they're just riffing off the end that the brigadier is saying that he's not much of a sweet tooth he's more of a soup man <laughs> and that <laughs> that made me laugh or or just the scene where uh 
Mrs. Moynihan comes back and she's waving her uh, revolver or whatever around and you see the worm has turned. The tea lady is in charge now. And I thought that was a, a funny, funny line. Or then when Evelyn directly to Flint going, you really are crackers, aren't you? That's a, that's a, that's a Troughton-esque line right, from right. Uh, Underwater Menace. But I think my top line was uh, when uh, Professor Morgan discovers that Moynihan is working for Sancrita and he's going, are you telling me that my housekeeper has entered into some kind of Faustian pack with a pixie from outer space? <laughs> and the doctor goes, well, it's beginning to look that way. And Professor Morgan goes, the minute she gets back here, she's fired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was so, good. It's not quite the Mark Gatiss level of uh, comedic uh, laughing, but I think they're good, solid lines. And they're interspersed throughout the script just at the very uh at the very beginning just after the doctor and evelyn land in the tardis uh they're in hedgerow or bracken and she goes oh come on then let's get out of the bracken at any rate because it's raining and muddy and uh the doctor goes that's the spirit we'll try uh that way and evelyn goes oh why not it looks by far the muddiest route <laughs> and well, I think, I mean, if just reading his writing in uh, Doctor Who magazine, I mean, Peg is a, is a, is a witty fellow. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, he's certainly got the ability to, uh, to produce some, uh, some good dialogue. And I thought also the overlaying, it was, yes, it was very focused on Cornish history with the Fugles and that kind of uh, uh, megalithic archaeology. But then layering on the whole story why the brigadiers there that during the second world war this was a listening station that went right. went awry because of obviously the strange electronic pulses coming from sancrita's uh ships underneath the tumulus but i thought that was a, another good layer on top of the story there's a lot of bits that tied together so even though even though I think this is a very successful pastiche of many many Doctor Who tropes mm-hmm. and uh, giving giving fans what they want, this is a, this is pretty much a fan service story. I think it works, and that doesn't happen all the time when you're trying to give fans exactly what they want, more of the same. It often, I think, more often than not, fall flat. Yeah, and I think you know certainly in its early days, Big Finish did that pretty well. I mean, it's they. They were trying to thread a difficult needle. I mean, they were kind of, you know, they were recognizing that primarily the people who were going to be buying these audios were fans because why were people who weren't fans, why would they do that? Mm-hmm. Yet they also wanted to be, they wanted to tell new stories as well. Right. And I think that they did a remarkable job in those. I think it's just extraordinary in some ways that, you know, Big Finish is even is still around. You know, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. I, I can't, I can't, yeah. I, I can't think of any other franchise that has had such a successful audio spin-off company right. basically exactly um, yeah. i mean i think some of it you know maybe is down to the bbc being relatively lax in terms of letting people take its characters and do things with it i can't imagine you know whoever owns star trek mm. you know licensing like an independent audio company to do, you know, 20 years worth of Star Trek spin-off mm-hmm. audios. I mean, mm-hmm. that's just, that just not going to happen. So, as I said, they were allowed to do it, but just because they were allowed to do it didn't ever mean that it was going to be successful. Right. And I think, you know, it's it's hats off to Russell and Briggs and all of the all of the producers and writers and kind of, you know, Demiurges, Alan Barnes, etc. behind Big Finish that it's still going. Right. After all these years, and I think I think you know with some with strong stories like these, in some ways, it's not so surprising. Yeah, this this to me is a much better pastiche than what we heard in the Genocide Machine with uh, Sylvester McCoy, which also I think was trying to do a pastiche of uh, earlier Doctor Who and yeah. Dalek stories. But for my money, this was a much more successful endeavor. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, I agree. I agree with that. I agree with that. I think also a, a lot of their longevity ultimately is due to uh, Russell Davis in the early days when it came back in 2005, 2006, uh, not putting the kibosh on their license and letting letting them have the room to produce stories of classic doctors. Yeah, and you can certainly imagine you know, a modern-day BBC not doing that. 
uh, and being a lot, I think, as the BBC is now nowadays, um, since two thousand and five, is a lot more controlling. Um, I think mm -hmm. it's a lot more threatened by the media landscape, and I think if it was if Big Finish was starting nowadays, I would uh, it was was continue mm -hmm. was at the same point it was in two thousand and five. Nowadays, I don't I I would be I would be more worried that it would have its uh, that it would have that that license taken away. Um, I think they're now so entrenched as producers of kind of quality, an independent producer of quality drama. And um, the fact mm -hmm. that you the, the Big Finish productions are heard regularly on on bbc radio i think may, whatever whatever happens to the bbc i think they're pretty safe now i think they, they mm -hmm. are kind of established as a as an independent radio drama production studio yeah i think you know back in 2005 russell davis um i think was visionary enough to imagine imagine that they could be that i think another less enlightened producer would have said this is just fan stuff right we're going to shut mm -hmm. them down because Right. Doctor Who is 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 on TV now. I think you mm -hmm. know it's kind of instructive to me that that the um, and I guess this happens. Uh, uh, this has happened in some ways with previous changes of logo, but how the new Doctor Who logo is is being spread across even the classic Blu-ray uh, set mm -hmm. releases, and is I think it's also going into big finish as well. Um, I think a that's a sign of strength that the big finish you know they have the kind of corporate logo. I think it's also a sign of the BBC's current weakness that you know one of their big properties they have a logo and it now has to be on everything. I see it as really kind of a sign of insecurity and a concern, perhaps that there may be a divergence of opinion and fandom that kind of was ushered in with the change of uh, uh, showrunner with Chris Chibnall that uh, yeah. we want to tow the company line, which kind of loops us right back to the beginning with how Nick Pegg got out of Doctor Who. It's just he didn't want didn't to tow want, the line. Didn't want to tow the company line. No, exactly. Mm -hmm. I just wonder if Big Finish would even get a start today with uh, the control coming out of Cardiff that they wouldn't want any kind of male doctor rivaling or being an alternative to the current uh, casting of Jodie Whittaker. Yeah, I'm sure that's that's the case. I mean, I think, you know, the executive class at the top of the BBC, I think, are worried. Um, and I think they're worried for good reason mm -hmm. about the future of the organisation as a whole. And I think that creates a, a sense of uh, a sense of threat within the organisation that, you know, externalises itself as this kind of level of control. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, Spectral Landing more. I recommend it. It's in a very, very pleasant, pleasant listen, and it is, it is very, very classic Doctor Who in many senses of the word. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it delivers all the pleasures of classic Doctor Who, mm -hmm. which is really that's great. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can't say fairer than that. As much as I really appreciate this, I do go. What if this was the first debut of Tom and Liz? doing a few big finishes before yeah wow missed, yeah missed and I, opportunity it is and i think it's that well you know i think it's understandable you know that that tom wanted not to be doctor who for such a long time right i think he left it too long before he realized exactly what that could be for him um but you know i think it took the death of liz to do it really yeah 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 and sadly yeah but, I mean, I think, you know, he's working incredibly hard now. You know, what is he, in his mid-80s? Mid yes, he is. Um, he's working incredibly hard now producing Doctor Who material, which mm -hmm. is which is good. And I, I'm glad that that's something he can do, and I'm glad he's getting paid for it, mm -hmm. and etc. One piece of trivia that I noticed, not that I've heard these, is that um, Susan Jameson is uh, Mrs. Wibsey. Hmm. I'm not familiar with the character. In the Chronicles of Nest Cottage. Okay. So those are those Paul Mars uh, oh, BBC, okay. BBC audios mm -hmm. from the 2010s or so with with um, with Tom Baker, mm -hmm. okay. where Tom Baker's doctor is living in a cottage called Nest Cottage and has kind of you know whimsical, uh, whimsical Paul Mars style adventures, okay. and his housekeeper is called Mrs. Wibsey. Okay, so and she's played by Susan Jameson. So, so a little bit of typecasting on Susan Jameson's part, I would. Think. Yep, she's she's always. I think Mrs. Wibsey is not quite as posh. <laughs> as as um as Mrs. Moynihan, but still she's a housekeeper nonetheless. Yeah, so we have one more big finish here this year that I think we're going to listen to, and that's going to be the Chimes of Midnight, the next Paul McGann 
India Fisher Eighth Doctor Adventure. It's a Christmassy one. Get that in. Yes, and December is coming up. We're entering Advent here very shortly, so it's very fitting for our podcast. And as we intimated, perhaps we'll find out that the uh, return of Doctor Who is happening on New Year's Eve Day or around then, and we will be... Zapruding the trailer. If yeah. Hopefully, we'll have more than one trailer coming up. Yeah, week. hopefully. As a, as I think I was saying last week, I mean, it is Christmas and New Year's is the time for for special TV in Britain. So, as a rumor, it's not unlikely it's that that might be the case. But mm-hmm. time will tell. Time will tell. Yes, indeed. So goodness. We've, okay. We've uh, we've spent our time. And uh, thank you for listening to the Metabulous 2 Podcast, episode 134. I have been talking with Ben. And I have been talking with David. And until next time, it'll be... uh, If you haven't started listening to Chimes of Midnight, start listening to Chimes of Midnight. Don't know if that's going to be the next episode, but that's uh, what's in store. Goodbye. The tea water may boil quickly, but you still have to steep this tea.